Okay, hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me today is... I'm Candice LaPage. So Candice, how's uh, your Hallmark Christmas in July going? Uh, well, sadly, I'm so behind on things that I'm still <gasps> watching all the June, like, wedding and dance detective mystery movies so i haven't even gotten started on the christmas and july stuff yet that's terrible that's such rancid news so disappointed well i guess it'll be christmas in august <laughs> right about when i also start the hundred days of horror movies Mm-hmm. yep uh that sounds like a candace uh film festival to me hallmark i mean christmas movies and horror movies when they start the Christmas movies before Halloween, which is what they did last year in mm-hmm. 2022, I mean, I just can't keep up, right? I'm like, I'm still watching horror movies for at least another week, Hallmark, and you're airing your first Christmas movie on October 22nd? Like, come on now, give me a break. So, I'm uh, always a month or so behind. I don't know if they're going to give you a break. I mean, that is pretty much everything Hallmark does now uh, is make these movies. That's their whole business model. But um, and there's only there's only room for growth, uh, apparently. But uh, I digress. <laughs> I think actually they they did have like a high watermark of like 40 films for Christmas a couple of years ago and have kind of like brought it back down to a more reasonable like 38 or 39. I see. Uh, well, that's enough about that. End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We're here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new meta comedy horror, The Blackening, which you can now stream on premium VOD or even find in a movie theater near you. If it is uh, playing, there are still some theaters that are, are playing it and perhaps one is near you. Uh, that is going to be in the back half of the show, of course, for the first half. Um, in honor of the blackening, which is a, a tribute, shall we say, um, to all the the black characters who die first, um, since it is a, an entirely black cast, with one notable exception. Um, we we're going to dedicate this part of the show, this first part of the show, to black characters in horror movies. Uh, some may survive, some may not. Um, but they are great black characters in horror movies, sort of lampshading this idea that uh, in a lot of these horror movies that there's a black character who is there to, uh, shall we say, denote uh, diversity, that uh, this black character is there to um, show, I guess, to to invite a broader audience into the movie theater and see, look at how inclusive we are. And uh, it is the, the inevitable joke that the the black character dies first. Which is not quite entirely true. I actually read that, that you, having looked through them all, they're not always the first to die, but they're almost certainly never the one to survive. That's right. It is the exception rather than the rule. Um, but so, uh, we have, you know, taken the the totality of horror cinema and uh, have made some lists. So let's uh, begin by talking about uh, Candace's first pick for a, a favorite black character from a horror movie. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this was really hard. Mm. There are so many great characters, uh, you know, across across decades, decades of of horror films. Um, but I mean, yeah, I had to. I I have to start with the the first one, the one I think who sort of sets the tone really for what what people think of when they think of black people in horror movies mm-hmm. and that's Ben from Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. So, um you know, and this one sort of proves the rule of course, he is not the last person or the first person killed. He's actually the final boy of this movie. Um, but George Romero, of course, who's never one to um, leave out a good political commentary um, about uh, whether humanity deserves to exist or not, uh, decided to kill him at the end of the film, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a very, um, yeah, a very, very pointed way. Not not even a little bit of subtlety there mm-hmm. <laughs> about, like, hey, Hey, look, the humans, they survived. No, no, they never <laughs> should have survived to begin with. Um, so, of course, George Romero famously says that he wasn't really making a political statement by by casting a black man to play the character of Ben, who does live through the night. Mm-hmm. Um, Till the day he died. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know, maybe he's right because sometimes maybe he's right. Maybe he is being truthful. Uh, because sometimes great things come from accidents and, you know, sometimes people read things into your artwork that you didn't mean uh, overtly, but you go, oh, yeah, maybe that was on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, I think particularly with the way uh, the way it is ended, I I think if it had been a white actor cast in this role, mm. um it might have still had the same impact. And I would say that later, uh, you know, Diary of the Dead, for instance, is one that I think really often is like, boy, did do we deserve to survive this or not? Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I, I, I still think that he could have said the same sort of thing about whether or not we deserve to if it was a white actor. But it's just so much clearer mm-hmm. with Ben. Mm-hmm. And then what's great about his character, too, is he's just he is very much in charge the whole time and you know when george romero says he didn't um he didn't plan for it to be a political commentary it could actually be the truth much in the way that ripley is such a great female character because she wasn't written to be female mm-hmm. she was just written to be the person who takes charge of this situation similar to ben he wasn't written to be a black man he was written to be the natural leader who just yeah. you know he's the main takes character charge yeah <laughs> yeah it it's um yeah yeah i've heard that story and i've seen the i've literally seen documentaries about the making of night of the living dead and george ramirez like he's just dwayne jones he's just the best actor i knew he's the best bit actor in pittsburgh and you know he's a, a actor with tremendous theater experience um and, you know he went on to mostly stick to the theater after night of the living dead and it was always kind of you know in the back of his head that he would the uh, ben although with Ben having died in the end, Ben would live longer than <laughs> Dwayne Jones would. And I think that's that's true to a certain extent. But it's it is interesting how the casting can sort of change 
the the point of view and things because you're right like the end and I, and i've heard black cultural commentators say this that the end with its clearly uh white group of men <laughs> with long guns uh sweeping this area for all the zombies and uh ben gets killed um through by one of those pos one of the members of that posse and it, you know just ends up unceremoniously tossed onto the pyre with all the rest of the bodies and there's so very clinch clearly a lynching allegory there and yeah. you, you wouldn't have like you wouldn't read that if it was a white actor um and and just the same like there's the scene in and this was in the the alien documentary memory um the scene where uh ash goes crazy and rolls up the magazine and tries to sh you know choke ripley with it um mm -hmm. there's this very pointed allegory to sexual assault with that um which would not read the same or maybe it would read the same but it definitely wouldn't hit as the same if that's uh a male ripley too so it, it's it's interesting how the casting can influence how you view a movie and i think this is a great example of that i will take i will take george at his word that yeah. this was this was an accident it was a happy accident well and even by taking george at his word you still know the type of person he is because if he's mm -hmm. claiming that in all of pittsburgh this man black man dwayne jones is the best actor in all of pittsburgh um that he would even have seen him act and mm -hmm. and consider him um you know better than other white actors doing similar sorts of things uh really makes a lot of open-mindedness mm. on on george romero's brain right mm, like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. things even for people who were who you know didn't see color as you may say mm -hmm. it's impossible to not see color in the 60s it was so heated all the time and the year this came out in 68 so, especially mm -hmm. the year mlk is assassinated the year that you have you know all these civil disturbances around the vietnam war the democratic national convention all kind of a direct response to the passage of the Civil Rights Act. It's, yeah, it's it's impossible not to read anything into it. And uh, like you know, I don't know if Romero's being humble in trying to, you know, <laughs> downplay that. But it it's, yeah, it's impossible not to see it. It, it. This this actor, this movie, this year, it's impossible not to see it. Yep. Um, I I've classic. Kind of... Can't beat it. I've I've been letting this back and forth go on because Ben was also on my list. Dwayne Jones has been in Night of the Living Dead. It's hard not to think uh, to make a list like this and not put um, Dwayne Jones on it. Um, having said that, I wanted to deke a little for the list and like go mm -hmm. a little bit outside the the lines. Um, it it will not go down as one of the great performances by a black actor in a horror movie, but it it, it is notable to me. Um, and it is V.C. Dupree as Julius Gaw in Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, which is uh, remains a personal favorite of mine for a lot of reasons. And this is one of them. Uh, Julius is one of the young people from Crystal Lake who gets on the SS Lazarus for this senior. I, I think it is a senior class trip to New York. Um, this this. <laughs> this land uh landlocked lake in new jersey somehow manages to go out to sea and uh sail to new york i the, the logistics don't matter 
uh, for our purposes, the point is that uh, the the survivors get to New York City. Uh, Julius goes to call for help. He finds a a, poli- a phone box, uh, tries to call the police, and Jason uh, finds him, attacks him, and he chases Julius up to the rooftops. Julius gets cornered. Uh, what does he do? Uh, because Julius is a boxing champion, he's going to fight Jason. Um, he, he it sounds so goofy as we're talking about it here, but he, he, he's you know he's dressed in his tracksuit. He's fighting Jason. He's throwing punch after. Him. He's landing some good punches, but of course by this point Jason is full zombie, so it doesn't matter. Um, pu- he's going round after round. He's just punching Jason until he's like exhausted. He's throwing, he's, keeps throwing his punches, but they miss. And of course, you know, it ends up with him being killed. Of course, Jason famously punches punches him so hard in the head. Julius's head rolls off and lands into the dumpster below and the lid closes, you know, nothing but net, um, so to speak. But what I find interesting, and I'm, 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 I'm by no means saying that Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason takes Manhattan is uh, has artistic flourish, but there's no music playing during the sequence. It's like played like really super straight. It's like, this is like a, uh, this is like a real myth mythological moment. It's like, here's this kid who is going to go down swinging. And you don't see that a lot in these movies. It's usually kids running and, you know, they, you know, maybe do something to distract Jason and then continue running and until you get to the final girl. The final girl, of course, is the one who, does does the fighting puts up the fight but for like a side character like julius just be like no i will fight i will fight and it may be a hopeless battle but i'm gonna fight and um it it is there is a kind of strange beauty to it again i'm not saying it's high art but the way it's played just vc dupree and kane hodder on the rooftop no music I'm, i'm not saying that it's well shot either it's kind of it's not really executed and it's not a, we're not watching creed here is what i'm saying but it, it is there, there's it's something about it feels very real it's something about it feels also like it's real and it's also kind of mytho- mythological like just to watch this kid like go down swinging i like it um yeah it's like they they gave him time to actually right yeah back yeah yeah it just they took this two minutes and it is like two minutes just this two minutes and it, it's it's heroic it's heroic in in all the right ways and again i'm not saying i'm gonna say the full title again <laughs> friday the 13th part eight jason takes manhattan i'm not saying it's high art but two minutes we're, we're getting as close as a friday the 13th minute movie can get that's true <laughs> <laughs> all right what is your number two okay so my next one um it's possible that this person may be on on your list as well, but for a mm-hmm. different movie. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, uh, LL Cool J <laughs> for his role in Halloween H two O, which is what I love him from. Um, he plays he plays the the guard at the fancy schmancy school that mm-hmm. Lori works at with her son, the uh, terribly haired Josh Hartnett. <laughs> oh, that yeah. hair! Yeah, it's just it's, it's shocking. This was it's the K- most shocking thing. It's his Casey face. He literally looks like a grown-up <laughs> Casey from Mr. Dress Up. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so LL Cool J's in this. He's he's the guard. Um, you know, he's kind of like 
kind of a cool guy. Mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, Adam Arkin, who's kind of also a cool guy, and he kind of get along. They joke around a bit. He jokes. He jokes around with Lori. He jokes around with the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody kind of loves him, except his wife, um, <laughs> who I think loves him, but is just exasperated by him because he wants to be a romance writer. He wants mm-hmm. to write books and he writes these cheesy romances and he's always trying to write them and he's reading out lines to his wife and he's thinking up lines. And he's just this like this guy who's just full of heart caught in the middle of this horrible Michael Myers like weekend where you know michael myers is trying to kill everybody everybody on site Mm -hmm. interestingly of course um uh ll cool j's character is ronnie he's not killed by michael myers Mm -hmm. as is in fact shot by josh hartnett (laughs) if Mm -hmm. i remember correctly um which is just a travesty but as it turns out it's all fine because he as a smart guy and uh was not was not hurt by the the gun i don't mm-hmm. remember if he was if it just missed him or grazed him or if it was wearing a a, a protection who knows i don't remember either no, way remember he did not either. die which is great i wonder if and I, I should look into it i wonder if his character did die and then <laughs> people said what what no hold on and then they just brought him back for the end uh you might be onto something there that might be one of the that there's there's something familiar about about that that seems correct i don't know mm-hmm. I don't, you could be right i'm just there's, there's something about could it be. that yeah. yeah that sounds semi-correct but anyway go on yeah e- either way i mean he was one of two black actors from halloween movies that i considered and i'm Busta. sorry Busta. i Busta. mean yes. i was i do love like i will watch h2o and resurrection before almost every other uh like halloween you know, except for the original. I'll mm. watch the original and then I, I will go to H2O in Resurrection. I just <laughs> love those two. They're great. Yeah, in Resurrection, you get uh, Busta Rhymes. Uh, you also get Tyra Banks. Um, mm-hmm. I'm missing someone. There's another black actor in that I'm missing. But uh, yeah, I, uh, one of the one of the teen or one of the I guess they're college aged. Uh, one of the college age characters is also black, and I can't remember the actor. But um, of course, Halloween Resurrection famous for Busta Rhymes attempting to uh, subdue Michael Myers with kung fu? Question mark. Um, yep. While while dressed as Michael Myers. While also dressed. That's that. That is also correct. Yeah. Um, uh, LL Cool J was on my. Uh, he was on my honorable mentions for Deep Blue Sea. So you did get me there. Um, yeah, yeah. I felt I felt like he was probably, but I mean, it is notable. Probably on he, a list. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, it is notable. You know, he he survived two horror movies. Uh, but no. Uh, for for another selection from my list, uh, I went with something a little bit more recent. I went with Otis Haywood Jr. OJ from Nope, which uh, I did recently revisit. It's on Crave now, and uh, I think I don't think I hated. Nope, when it came out, I think I, I quite liked it, but I think my estimation of it has gone up in rewatching it. And I think Daniel Kalua is one of the reasons why. I mean, he's a great actor, obviously, but there's something about this role, this performance, um, the, the genre that Jordan Peele plays with in Nope, the, the Western feel. Um, 
you know, it, it really does feel like, and I don't know how much of this is true, but Daniel Kaluuya is um, sort of playing with a lot of the old tropes of movie cowboys. There's something very John Wayne-ish about his performance. You know, the he's a man of few words. He's got this sort of steely determination. Um, he, he looks great riding a horse. Uh, he's pragmatic. Um, he's the man with the plan <laughs> and, uh, it, 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 there's just something, there's something that he does feel like he's sort of channeling those old fashioned Western characters, even at the end when he's like sitting heroically atop the horse after the, the, the alien has been defeated and it's the, the dust is settling and you just see him emerge from, from the dust cloud after, um, letting his sister successfully save the day uh <laughs> but it, it it is he is so great he he has such presence even when he's not saying anything your eye kind of oh i wonder what oj's doing um he, he, you know he there's something really magnetic about him even though he's not he doesn't have the most memorable lines well he, he has maybe one of the most memorable lines with the note the, that delivery when he's sitting in the truck and he looks up and he sees Jean Jacket in the sky and he just closes the door and says, nope. And just that, <laughs> the, the, the way the camera hangs on him after he says nope and shakes his head and just, you know, this sort of like blissful, I'm just going to take a minute and not worry about the alien thing in the sky. It's fine. It's just not bothering me. Um, it's 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 really grounded and and it just watching it again made me think about a lot of those old cowboy movies the strong silent type the man with no name uh the man who doesn't say very much but will come through in the end because he's the hero and he doesn't let, doesn't have to let you know it he's he's the man on the horseback and uh he will always be there to save the day um even if he refuses to admit that you know this is anything just but it's just another day on the ranch. It's another day on the ranch. He's the man on the horse, and that's all there is to it. And I I I love I love the movie. I love that performance. And I I think um I think nope. Uh I think it's primed for to to sort of be elevated in the conversation. I I I this my estimation of nope has only gone up and watching it recently, so I yeah, like it. Yeah, yeah, I I love Nope, and it's, um, yeah, like I, I said when when you know I sort of uh, when we talked about it on the show, like I've never felt better at the end of a Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Why do I do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, Jordan Peele movie. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. never ever feel better at the end of a Jordan Peterson anything, um, <laughs> but I never feel better at the end of a Jordan Peele movie than than at nope and you're right the as the dust like that that shot is just so iconic mm -hmm. of oj on the horse just like he's just there you yeah. know he's always going to be there that's right that's right yeah yeah um yeah it is weird i had the same thought about tim and i reviewed master gardener last week and it's like a strangely optimistic paul schrader movie mm. so they're yeah, it's it's weird that sometimes we get these directors who are not known for their optimistic takes to you know <laughs> it, it extend us a bit of optimism about the human condition. Anyway, um, yeah. let's get to your your third pick here. Yeah. Uh. So, um, speaking of people who are just 
always going to be there. You can always rely on them. That's uh, Loretta <laughs> Devine in Urban Legends 1 and 2. Oh, nice. As as uh, uh, Reese, the um, campus security guard. So Loretta Devine played this role in the first film. She's, you know, she's definitely not a main character. The, the characters are all the teens, all the very, very white teens. <laughs> And then there's the, you know, the one person who works there, you know, very obviously, you know, you can, you can go deep into urban legends if you want to and talk about how, oh, look, all the students are white and all the people who work here are black. How interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but not only does she survive, she also, she comes through, like she's there when, when the heroes need her to be. And then she shows up in the second one. So it was already like so unique for her to have, you know, not only for her to have survived as a woman, a black woman who just happens to be one of the people who works at the at the school. Right. Like this is just primed for eh, you're just like fodder. You're just one of the the bodies that will help to push the you know final girl to finally take mm-hmm. charge. Mm-hmm. But no, she she was there and she survived and she helped. And then in the second film, she's the only thing. That actually carries over, except mm-hmm. for a Rebecca Gayhart in a uh, at the very end in a post credit scene, but that's besides the point. <laughs> but so she's she's almost like the catalyst in the second one because she there it's a, a film school. She's working on this campus, and there's a there's also like an elite film school there, and all the students have to make their own films. And one of the the students is talking to her, and she shares a story about this, you know, all these murders that happened on the her at her last job based on urban legends. And so then this student, Jennifer Morrison, decides to make her film about that sort of thing. And so uh I feel like Urban Legends Final Cut is better than people give it credit for. Mm. Uh, but it is clearly like it's meta, it's trying to do the scream thing, it's, you know, it's 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 not as good as Scream, but it's much like Urban Legend wasn't as good as Scream either. But it's sort mm. of trying to do the same sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But there she is. She's saving the day again. She knows exactly what to do in what situation. She's very hilarious. Her lines are are so good in both films. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she again, she makes it all the way till the end both mm-hmm. films sadly she did not come back for urban legend 3 bloody mary which i feel like was probably a totally different movie script and was yeah. purchased and they said let's just put urban legends on there and get a few people in the theater yeah it's a real missed opportunity um having not seen either of the two sequels to urban legend but um loretta divine is uh is a presence and uh, always a welcome presence. I think. So you're um, telling me you haven't seen Final Cut? I have not seen Final Cut. No. You should definitely fix that. <laughs> All right. It is. Noted. It is much better than you would think. Uh, d- duly noted. Um, I'm going to choose. I'm going to do one of my honorable mentions here since uh, we shared uh, Ben, um, Kylie Curran. Who played Abra Stone in Doctor Sleep, the mm. the sequel to The Shining? Um, she she was I don't know if she was black in the book, 
or if that was like a decision Mike uh, Flanagan made. Um, but I mean, neither here nor there. Um, she's such a great character. Uh, she's proactive. She's kind of the antithesis to Danny. Danny has grown to kind of hate his abilities and just has lived this kind of miserable life. Meanwhile, she's more than willing to sort of engage with her abilities and see what she can do. And and she's the one who wants to deal with the, the true not cult. And um, I mean, she's kind of disturbed by them. She's so powerful with the shining that um, when they're doing dirt, you know, it can't help but reach her. But she's the one who reaches out to Dan and says, like, look, you know, people like us are are being threatened by these people. And, you know, it sh- should be incumbent on us to to help others. And um, Dan eventually sees it her way. And uh, to the point where, you know, she's left off in a good place, having uh, accepted her abilities and um, as you know, is is putting them to some uh use for the common good and uh i like that character i like that movie too dr sleep i know we've kind of talked about it around mm-hmm. the edges but it, it is a much better movie that deserved a a much bigger reception than it got um it, it is uh i think uh a real classic and uh, maybe in the um in the future is is sort of we're talking about cult classics you know that uh, more people kind of revisit that and see that as uh, a true a truly wonderful uh, a film um, and, and far better than it needed to be and far more honorific of Kubrick's shining <laughs> than maybe Stephen mm-hmm. King would have wanted. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, Abra Stone is, is such a great character too. It's um, a rare sort of um, black female King heroine. So that's, uh, that's interesting mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, she was great, and she definitely seems like she's going to come out of the whole experience less traumatized than Danny. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's key too. That you know, he's Danny's able to sort of use his trauma to um, make a make a better future for Abra. So, yeah, it, it's um, uh, you know, Abra doesn't die at the end. So there you go. Like LL Cool J always makes it to the end. Uh, even he made it to the end of NCIS Los Angeles too. I should point out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> ladies love cool james you just can't kill that guy no it's it seems like the lucky charm actually uh he, he makes it to the end um now obviously when you have a, a horror movie featuring an all-black cast you can't kill them all or can you uh we're gonna find out we're gonna review the blackening after the break you are listening to end credits here on cfru 93.3 fm cfru.ca guelph campus and community radio In the flash. Is this good or bad? Wait, how do we know we can trust him? 
I'm one of the good ones. Oh, that does not help they all say that. That actually makes you seem more suspicious. You can trust me. Seriously, if I got an invite to the cookout, I'd be honored, but I wouldn't go. And why the f not? Because I know my presence in that all-black space would be a disturbance, and undo it being an all-black space. That's a pretty good answer. I'm so mm -hmm. worse than me. Okay, that was a clip from The Blackening. It is a new film from Tim Story, and it stars Grace Byers, Jermaine Fowler, Melvin Gregg, Kay Mayo, Dwayne Perkins, Antoinette Robertson, Shaniqua Walls, and Diedrich Bader as Park Ranger <laughs> B. White. Um, <laughs> kind of perfect, but... Uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking a lot about Dietrich Bader in Office Space, where he's like uh, Ron Levinson's next door neighbor, and he's you know he's a pretty much a hole digger, uh, yeah, with a mullet, and uh, <laughs> doesn't really. Yeah, he is like the chillest redneck. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that was pointed or not, but I mean Dietrich Bader is always such a great, um, great presence uh, to have in the movie, but. Um, so the blackening, uh, what I found interesting, and I'm stealing this idea from Sean Fennessy of the Big Picture Podcast, uh, noting that it, it's interesting to get this movie. Um, it feels like the end of sort of the get out cycle, these of these like socially conscious, self-aware movies of, you know, things like obviously the, the works of Jordan Peele, which we just talked about, also things like Antebellum and Midsommar and uh, Men uh the invisible man you know these sorts of movies that are have more than the slasher or the the killer or the whatever the curse on its mind that it's using these these tropes as um social commentary and the blackening is the ultimate result of that because it's also i mean it, it's playing with that obviously but it's also kind of sending them up as well this is kind of like when you got scary movie at the end of all the sort of meta textual horror movies that started with scream and it kind of feels like the end of something and I, and I heard that commentary before i watched the blackening but having watched it now i i do i do wonder if that's true to a certain extent that this isn't like uh putting a bow on the uh as sean called it the the get out generation of horror movies yeah yeah well what i think is interesting about this um, I didn't see the original sort of short that it was based on, which I think no, was like a Comedy I. Central short or something. Um, but essentially, it's just, uh, you know, what they show a lot of in the trailer. And even when you're watching the movie, when you get to this scene, you can sort of go, oh, I get it. This scene <laughs> is actually like we made this whole movie for this scene, which is when they have to decide who's the blackest. Mm -hmm. Right. Because when they're they're playing this game and it's like, you know everybody's going to die unless you decide who the blackest is and and sacrifice that person and so they're going through all this this stuff trying to you know prove to each other how how black or not black they are and i'm like mm. obviously this is like you can just tell you know by how much of that is used in the trailer and what it's like when you get to the thing you're like clearly this this started from here and that is actually what the what the short was was that sort of scene Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that when I was telling people, oh, I'm going to watch The Blackening, it's kind of like a parody of a horror with all black people. But yet I watch it and I go, it's really not a parody. Like, mm. it, it's funny. But this is just like a straight up 
horror film. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like it's it's a it's a comedy horror, but it's not a parody. It's not scary movie. None of the characters are are stereotypes or played up for laughs. Like they're all real people and all of the situations play out in very real ways. There's no like ridiculous violence that you know you survive from like <laughs> in the scary movie movies. Like so really like in a lot of ways this isn't really a parody. Mm. Maybe a satire you could say. But really it is they they did, you know, they took what started as a parody and what started as a joke to say oh what happens when we're all in the in the movie which one of us dies well which one's the blackest because that's how we're gonna that's how we go down right mm-hmm. the, the blackest one dies first but then they they were able to you know create a a legitimately pretty good horror film around it mm-hmm. which is great i want more of these <laughs> Uh yeah no it it is it is not quite like the scary movies it's like well let's take scream and you know uh do the naked gun thing with it it, it you know it it's kind of hollow there there is a lot going on in this um or a lot more I should say going on in this I think um the the design is really interesting like the 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 game itself with the little sambo yeah. mouthpiece which is <laughs> so disturbing um. But uh, at the same time, the the mass killers wear this kind of like it looks like kind of like a leather face version of a minstrel face mm-hmm. that is is also like e- even kind of like more uniquely disturbing in its own way. So like the the the, the design of this is like is so on point. Um, and yeah, like all the characters like get a chance to sort of be their own person. I'm I'm the thing about Clifton is like there's a there's a literal scene. <laughs> <laughs> this this nerdy the the nerdy one of the group uh clifton uh there's a scene where he runs into uh i can't remember who he runs into at the 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 convenience store but she's she's obviously doesn't remember his name and she calls him carlton and I thought, that's <laughs> yeah. a that's a little it's a little on point because the the, the actor jermaine fowler is like putting on this like kind of hoity kind of carlton-esque voice um and he's got a yeah, little my mustache my note mm-hmm. my note is that he's got the uh sorry uh to bother you white voice mm-hmm. or what whatever that film is called sorry sorry not to bother you sorry i feel like no, there's a negative sor- in there it was, i think it was sorry, sorry to, to bother you, you. Yeah. yeah 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 he's no, got yeah. the he's got that white voice you know put on your white voice and we all know everybody has <laughs> one. and he's he's basically talking in that in in his white voice that's right that's right it's um like that character was a little bit on the nose but for for reasons that might be spoilery maybe that was the point um yeah i don't know how spoilery it is (laughs) yeah it's true like i was i was uh i was reading some stuff online and uh, people had put the clues together it's like well you you know what happens because x and and y and all these kind of clues but um yeah i i like the cast It, it the this did, as you said, this did start as like a short um, the, the comedy troupe called Three Pete, and that's what I find interesting in this is you you may not recognize anyone aside from uh, Dietrich Bader, but Jay Farrow is also in the the cold open too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, and I I do recognize I will say Antoinette Roberts 
Schwartz and Lisa. She played mm. Coco through all four seasons of um, Dear uh, Dear White People. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds. I didn't watch Which, that, but that sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, they they it is sort of like from an improv background that this was sort of written and and I've read to varying degrees how much improv was going on. What what I found interesting is that the improv. Uh, this doesn't feel terribly improvised. It feels like it was kind of well scripted. So I'm not sure if this is like the gift of um, Tim Story and a really good editor sort of <laughs> making it look like it It was got this kind of finely scripted project. Um, but um, it, there, there is kind of an improvised feel to it. Like, every, like everyone's zingers like really seem to, to hit. So I don't know if this was just really workshopped well or if this was just you're watching really great improv people and uh then having a really great editor and in the cutting room who's able to put to put together the best singers but um there, there is a kind of rawness to it that i find appealing yeah yeah i i you know kind of coming back to the characters they all felt really real to me and you know when you say that you you've heard that there was a lot of sort of improv kind of happening on set i'm like that actually feels that feels true to me because all of these characters seemed very like none of them seem to be at because sometimes you know someone will say something or they'll sort of change characters midway mm-hmm. and you're like i don't what what's going on here really this this guy <laughs> is suddenly going to be the the hero at the moment but all mm-hmm. these characters felt really real to me and mm. all of you know their comebacks and the way they spoke to each other and their relationships with each other also just really yeah like it felt it felt really real like in a way that a lot of because you know this is a, a essentially like a slasher sort of thing mm-hmm. slasher in the woods and mm-hmm. in a lot of ways that those films you kind of get people who you can basically tell I'm like you guys just met today right half the time in the scripts they also just met today so like we're not going to try to make these people seem like they know each other they're only going to be on set for a day Mm -hmm. but these characters are all like they all went to college together and this is like 10 years later and many of them have remained friends i really loved you know on that the the way that the characters could just look at each other Mm mm-hmm and and I, I loved the way they did that, where you actually heard them sort of <laughs> what they were saying with their look uh-huh. to each other. Mm-hmm. I love that. The first time it happened, I was like, "Oh, this is this is fun," mm-hmm. uh, and I'm I'm glad they've decided to go this way. But yet, also made it very clear, like this isn't like mental telepathy. They don't really hear each other <laughs> because <laughs> the other. Um, so it was uh, Lisa and Allison in the car. Yeah. And then Dwayne was driving and he, you know, made it very clear. Like, I see you guys looking at each other <laughs> and, you know, having your your looking conversation. So I love that they kept they just kept doing that the whole film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the point where where it happened at the end between Dwayne and uh, Namdi. Mm-hmm. It still felt really like I'm still on board with this. I'm not this isn't like. <laughs> yes they're just saying this with their looks mm-hmm. i get it they did it well yeah there's a lot of that which i i found you know th- there's a very specific tone to this that like obviously there's humor 
that I think will probably hit harder for a black audience than it would for a a, a white audience. But um, I mean, that's okay. It, I, I think there's it's still pretty funny, even if you don't get all the very, you know, sort of the American black American cultural specificity to it. Um, I think that it, it actually gives the film a little more life to it. And I've actually, I've been enjoying sort of peering through the, you, you know, the, the way others have interpreted this, that it, uh, somebody made the point that there's a scene where they, <laughs> they split up, which is uh, treated as a, a very kind of white reaction to the situation, which I, I've found funny. The, the mm-hmm. reaction was to split up uh, the, st- <laughs> the strong man is strongest yeah. alone kind of ideal. But um they this person noted that you know the darker skinned characters um stay indoors and the lighter skinned characters uh make a run for it decide to make a run for it which is an inversion of how um lighter skinned black people would be used as the for you know work indoors um during slavery and the more darker skinned people would be used for work outdoors you know this kind of like class Mm -hmm. divide inside blackness and you know the when they decide to split up there's kind of an inversion of that where the darker skinned characters stay indoors and the lighter skinned characters make the break for outdoors so i mean there there are levels to this that i i i think that makes the movie more interesting because as as a white viewer you don't necessarily access them first but on the other hand, you know, there's, you know, great one-liners like the whole thing with Clifton where he has like an Android phone. He's, he's like, does anyone have an Android charger? And somebody says to him, like, we don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> that's not accepted here. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, one of these warning signs you get in the movie that Clifton is uh, not, let's let's say not on the team. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's, it's pretty, I mean, the whole whole idea is that you know clifton wasn't really friends with all of them mm-hmm. which is you know stated right away as everyone tries to remember his name and <laughs> oh yeah, i haven't seen you since since whenever but <laughs> yeah. uh, can we talk a little bit about the questions they're all asked so part of mm-hmm. this is that they have to go play this game called the blackening mm-hmm. and they have all these trivia questions and i found that part also very funny and i feel like that um is also probably something that had been like workshopped and and yes. you know done as a skit in the past. All these sorts of questions. Mm-hmm. The friends one absolutely <laughs> killed me. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like who you know four people, four black people have been on Friends, and like who were they? And is there all like I don't know that person. I don't know. I don't watch it. I don't watch it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Nam D. <laughs> Namdi's character's response is my favorite because they're all sort of, you know, saying they didn't watch it, but that they remember like one person and one person and one person. And Namdi keeps going every time someone comes up with another one. He's like, hold on. Did all of you watch the show? It's like, no, seriously, really? All of you watch this show? <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, I mean, I didn't watch Friends all the way through, but, you know, there were a couple that came to mind. Um it's also funny the way that joke wraps up at the end with uh, the the game says no the only acceptable answer is uh, no I did not watch that show are you kidding um, yeah <laughs> which is uh, 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 probably uh, one of those things because yeah it's oh no the joke even takes it further the jokes like no I uh, no I didn't watch Friends I was watching Living Single which 
Right. <laughs> Which was one of these uh, Fox sitcoms, you know, that Fox was uh, just starting and um, made a point of uh, green lighting a lot of TV shows featuring minority characters. So you got things like uh, the, the Martin Lawrence sitcom and Living Single and In Living Color um, and uh, what was the not I'm not thinking about 21 Jump Street. There was another show where it's uh, hmm. good looking actors working undercover. I think it was literally called New York Undercover or something. But it was just like this. They're playing to youthful audiences. They're playing to multicultural audiences. And then, of course, as Fox got bigger, they kind of stopped doing that. So yeah. there's <laughs> there's a little cultural relevancy in there at the same time that this other sitcom about six relatively affluent white people in New York living large, literally living large in large apartments. Um, but <laughs> yes, as they do in sitcoms, <laughs> as they do in sitcoms. That's right. Um, I think there was, I don't remember where I read it, but I think there was another, uh, one of the potential questions in the game. I think it was in the IMDb trivia. One of the potential questions in the game was named two white people on in living color. <laughs> Jim Carrey. <laughs> Jim Carrey was Jennifer one. Lopez. She's not white, but she's not she's, black. <laughs> no, uh, I think Alexandra. No, there Wentworth, was a woman, though. Yeah, Alexandra Wentworth was on *In Living Color*. Yeah. I think she was on after the Waynes yeah. left. But yeah, yeah. no, it's. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's interesting to sort of to look at uh, the culture in, in a very um, from a very that this very sort of unique specific perspective. Um, what else about the blackening can we talk about in the last few minutes here? Well, uh, I mean, I'm sort of sorry we didn't get a bit more with the, uh, you know, sort of the two couple, the first couple kind mm. of from the cold opening. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I really them. liked them. I, I feel like I feel like there uh, there could have been more there. Um because you know they they were they were pretty good like and the first time they they because they were the ones who rented the place brought everybody together and then found the game first mm -hmm. and then were not there when everybody else showed up um <laughs> yeah I, I i feel like we sort of missed out a little bit on not getting a bit more a bit more from them mm. uh that was of course morgan and sean yeah it's it, it is strange to me that hyper self-aware uh, people would get to the cabin and the, the couple who rented the cabin and got there first aren't there and, and don't show up for hours and, and no one's worried. That's maybe. Yeah. Well, there was a line at some point where <sighs> someone said, oh, yeah, they texted us and say they said they'd be coming back later this evening. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what kind of friends these are, but <laughs> I would be like, what? Hold on. No way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you invited all of us here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a little peculiar, but I guess, you know, if it gets us into the movie, it's, yeah, what, what well, the thing I keep coming back to is, is just, it, it is, I, I do wonder uh, how much more black audiences are getting out of this than, than the white audiences. I, <laughs> there's a line, it's like, I don't understand the full cultural re relevance of this, but when, uh the park ranger um uh mr white shows up again um and uh he's trying to convince them that he's not in whatever they're worried about he's not in on it and um th they have this like 
this i guess skill testing question to find out if he was like an ally like a or <laughs> like if what would you do if you were invited to a cookout and he said i'd be flattered but i would politely decline because i'm not sure a white presence is wanted in what's considered an explicitly black space and, um you know so much of that is a little bit over my head but i i i, yeah. I appreciate i appreciate the gag i i appreciate what like to to the explicitness in which like Dietrich Bader is like spelling this out. It there is something about just how the level to which he's going to to explain himself that that uh, tickled me a lot. And then the yeah. reaction well, was like, "Well, that's a pretty good answer." Yeah, especially with his his name being White, which of course yeah. then immediately following that he's trying to call in and he's going, "Yeah, it's White, White, uh huh, White." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like nobody pronounces them hard H's. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, unless you're Stewie, like asking for cool whip. But um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's. I I found this a very interesting movie. I found it a very funny movie. Um, uh, but you know, like I said, it, I think depending on the audience, you probably get a lot more out of it but having said that i mean i i found it very this isn't kind of as you said it's 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 a parody it's not a spoof um it's doing something very unique it's doing something uh on, on its own it's it's lifting off of those movies of again let's call it the get out generation but um it, it is having its own conversation too and it is it's sort of it, it or it, it's own separate conversation as part of the grander conversation that those movies have generated. So um, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's a good time. And um, I thought it was breezy. It's like 97 minutes, which I mean, you know, for, for That's a movie it. now, yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, just, like just generally, we were talking before we were recording about Oppenheimer, but um, you know, 90, 97 minutes um, it's breezy in, in just the, the pure metric of that. But I found it went by really, really fast. I was surprised to reach the end credits how fast that, that came up and that i think that probably speaks to the level of enjoyment mm -hmm. yeah i i hope this is you know this along with jordan peele's films and many mm -hmm. of the other sort of films that have been coming out lately it just i think i hope we're going into a new sort of black exploitation era of horror mm -hmm. because i mm -hmm. do think that 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 voice has been missing in horror and um hasn't always been like there has been other times when when you know the the black experience has been a big part of horror films so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i'd like to see it again yeah it come it you know it comes around you know we get you get the the hammer dracula you get several then uh, almost because of that as a response to that you also get blackula coming along too so it's um it is time I it may, I hope it's the start of something at the end, but we'll have to leave that there. Uh, that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. If you want to listen to us again, you can find us on our website and creditsradioshow.com. You can download us from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. When you're on Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on End Credits. Just open up Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show, and we're on Twitter at End Credits Radio. And Candice, where else can people find you out on the internet? Yes, I am everywhere on the internet at Sin48. That's C-I-N-N 
or eight um even on threads just started threads account uh and uh yeah look for me look for me on mastodon and threads instead of twitter i'm i'm really i'm really moving out of that space it's just not cool anymore I'm going down to the ship anyway. Uh, I'll be back here on CFRU tomorrow at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram still at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. You can stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And we shall return next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another edition of End Credits. And we will see you then. Thank you.